1: Welcome to Season 6, Episode 39 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of sexual violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. (music) Elderly people in and around South London were fearful they could be next. The man the press dubbed the Night Stalker entered the homes of the most vulnerable by prying their windows open in the early hours with the predator still at large? Did anyone feel safe? He's highly controlled. He's an individual who's got obviously obsessive problems almost to a pathological degree. Um, He's very controlled about his behavior. He's pedantic about how he approaches his crimes and how forensically aware he is and covering up his tracks and disguising himself. Literally are treating their victims as objects. They don't see them as uh, human beings. They don't have that sort of normal sensitivity. I'm afraid you Can you please help me? On the night of november fourteenth, two thousand and nine. Metropolitan Police Officers from Operation Minstead were surveilling an area in Croydon near Orchard Avenue. The spot had been chosen as it was known to be frequented by the person investigators were tasked with finding, known in the media as the Night Stalker or the Minstead Rapist. The surveillance had begun in late October, and weeks later the task force were more determined to find him than ever. However, doubt set in, had the rapist noticed them or found out where they were and stayed away? During a prior night of surveillance, three house break-ins were reported in the area that the team were not watching. The first two were close together, but the third was a significant distance away, along a route covered by CCTV cameras. This was a hopeful breakthrough on a distressing case. The team now had something to go on. There was a car on the footage they were looking for, a light-coloured current model Vauxhall Zafira. Investigators also held other information about the suspect. He was a black male of Caribbean descent. This finding was based on DNA evidence that had been carelessly left at the crime scenes over the previous 17 years. Mass DNA swabbing of men in the black community had been met with criticism. People showed concern that there was an element of racial profiling involved in their selection. Two officers noticed a car matching the precise description they'd been given from the observations on the break in CCTV footage. The vehicle had parked on a junction by Orchard Avenue. It was noted the car had not been there on previous nights. The detectives kept their eyes on the Vauxhall while they summoned other officers in the area. An hour later they saw a black male running from a cul-de-sac, Wilkes Gardens, before jumping into the car and driving off. Aerial support tracked the vehicle as it moved north along Orchard Avenue. Officers tailed the car a short distance behind. They did not want to approach the man near the area they had been watching, in case it was reported in the media. There could not be a false arrest or a setback. Officers needed to be confident that this was the person they had been hunting for so long. It was imperative he was caught. The driver was travelling fast, but not fast enough to draw attention to himself. After three miles he indicated to turn left onto Witham Road, and officers quickly boxed the car in, forcing the driver to pull in on the curb, The man behind the wheel identified himself as Kelvin Grant. He appeared to be confused and asked the officers surrounding him to tell him what was going on. The driver continued talking, soon admitting that his first name was in fact Delroy, but he went by Kelvin. Peering inside the car, it was noted the interior had been adapted for a disabled user. Officers found bank cards belonging to both Delroy and Jennifer Grant. A crowbar, a screwdriver, gloves, a blue rain jacket and a hat were also discovered in the vehicle. As Delroy Grant was patted down and searched, officers felt as though he was wearing padding. In fact, he was wearing two sets of clothes. A torch was found in one of his pockets. Some members of the police force recognized the gloves and balaclava as matching those worn by the suspect, who had attempted to withdraw money with a stolen bank card when he was recorded by a camera at an ATM. Delroy Grant was arrested. Suspected of being responsible for one of the most heinous and lengthiest crime sprees in the history of the Metropolitan Police. Beginning in the early 1990s, a series of crimes were committed by a sole offender. In the dead of night, a man would single out houses occupied by elderly or infirm people, watching from the shadows as the person inside switched off their lights before settling down in bed. Using a screwdriver, he would open doors or remove window panes to gain entry. In silence, he crept through the house, cutting the power, detaching light bulbs disconnecting the phone line. It's a routine he practiced many times over the years. The elderly victims were jolted awake by the blinding beam of a flashlight and hushed demands from the stranger in their bedroom who asked for money. Subdued by fear and the overwhelming reality of what they faced, the people the intruder targeted aged between their late 60s and 90s would not be able to fight off a much younger man. Without much choice, they complied, telling the intruder where he could find money if they had any in the house. After subjecting many of the victims to brutal sexual attacks, he left them in the dark, unable to call for help, having cut their phone lines. In October 1992, An 84-year-old woman was attacked in her bedroom. The intruder had broken in at the side of the house. He raped her and stole cash and jewellery before leaving the petrified victim alone. In great distress, she was unable to summon help after all the necessary methods of fast communication had been sabotaged. She had to walk to her niece's house to call for the police by which time her attacker was long gone. When she was taken to the station, she was subjected to an intrusive but necessary exam. This attack provided the first DNA sample, which was catalogued and stored, where the profile remained until advances in DNA analysis progressed years later. For months, then years, the perpetrator seemed to keep a low profile. He appeared to choose vulnerable, predominantly single people that were strangers to him. He was linked to over 30 reported break ins during that time period. He inadvertently left telltale signs behind at many of the crime scenes. Break ins were linked by distinctive markings left by a screwdriver that he used to pry glass panes away from window frames. In the late 1990s, the crimes were investigated by police forces in different boroughs across South London. Nearing the end of 1998, the assailant broke into the home of an 81-year-old woman in Surrey. Her mobility was reduced, and she had undergone surgery on her hips some time before the intrusion, as was typical. He attempted to remove the window pane using the same tool he had previously. The woman relied on carers and neighbours to check in on her. To save her from having to open the door, instead of distributing house keys to everyone that visited, she left a single key hanging on the inside of a fence for guests to use when they came to her home. The man knew where the key was and he used it to let himself in. He attempted to sexually assault the victim, but she was in too much pain, unable to move her legs. After the attack, it occurred to the assailant that the elderly victim may have passed away. He checked her wrist for a pulse. She had survived the terrible ordeal. The perpetrator left behind evidence once again. He had ejaculated. His DNA profile was soon matched to the rape from 1992. The suspect was identified as a serial offender. A task force was established to catch him before he committed any more assaults. Operation Minstead was formed by the Metropolitan Police. During the summer of 1999, the team noted something had shifted in the rate of suspected attacks committed by the same person. The gaps between offending became progressively shorter. In June of that year, after placing a pillow over the face of a 71-year-old woman and demanding money, he attempted to rape her. She fought back he fled, but his face covering was left at the scene. A DNA profile was obtained and confirmed to be a match to other crime scenes. The next month, an 83-year-old man who was partially blind and suffered from severe health issues was sexually assaulted. Unable to use his phone or move, He continually shouted for help until his neighbours heard the elderly man's cries and came to his aid. Tall marks were once again observed and a window pane had been removed. The indentations of the frame matched previous break-in evidence. Just weeks later the rapist invited himself into the home of an 82-year-old woman. The incident, combined with other survivors' accounts, painted a bizarre picture of the perpetrator's behaviour towards the victims of his crimes. He embraced the elderly woman and asked her if she wanted to have sex. Horrified, she refused, but when he attempted to reach inside her clothing, she asked him not to, and he stopped. After taking her money and drinking a can of beer in her home, he shook her hand and, terrified, she thanked him for not hurting her. Again, the rapist was arrogant or ignorant, utterly unaware that he had left more vital clues behind. As suspected, the DNA profile on the beer can he left behind matched the other samples. His modus operandi remained the same for the next reported attack that occurred in August 1999. An 88-year-old woman was awoken at 3am when her eyes flickered open and she saw the silhouette of a man standing by her bed. Before she could scream, he covered her mouth with his gloved hand and demanded money. She told him she had no cash upstairs. He forced her to take him to her handbag and then stole the contents of her purse before forcing himself on her in the living room of the home she had lived in for two decades. It appeared as though the violence in the assaults was escalating as the perpetrator stayed for a longer period of time to sexually assault the woman repeatedly. The pensioner was left alone. The rapist did not notice the emergency cord she had installed in the house as it was still intact. She was able to set off her care link alarm. When help arrived, she was taken straight to the hospital, where she was treated for severe injuries. The woman never felt like she could return to her home again. Another of the elderly victims felt too ashamed to speak about what happened to them until a day later, and she was too petrified to sleep in case he came back. On some occasions, the perpetrator did not assault the occupant of the home. He just stole money or items before leaving. It was reported that he was softly spoken, with an almost gentle inflection to his voice despite his capacity for horrific sexual violence. Between 1992 and 2009, it was suspected that this man had broken into between 100 to 300 homes. This is likely an underestimate of the actual number of crimes committed by the same man, due to the victim's fear of coming forward. All his targets reported the same thing. A black male aged between 25 to 45, wearing a face covering, dark clothing and gloves. As with most prolific offenders, he had been given his moniker by the media. The Night Stalker. In 2004, DNA samples were resubmitted for testing. With advancements in analysis techniques, the police were able to isolate specific characteristics. When the profile indicated the suspect had ancestry from Trinidad and Tobago, officers from Operation Minstead were flown out to conduct inquiries, but their efforts were fruitless. The police began to request voluntary DNA samples from the men in the black community, but a large number of people did not come forward. As the DNA evidence had led nowhere, investigators had to refocus on other things that could identify a suspect. Criminal profiling of the perpetrator gave the impression that he was an employed black male, likely with some experience in caregiving. Detective Chief Inspector Colin Sutton, whose team accredited with the capture of the murderer Levi Belfield, took over the running of Operation Minstead in 2009. It had been handed over by DCI Simon Morgan, who had headed the case up until that point. During May, a call came in from a 78-year-old woman who reported a break-in that fit with the intruder's M.O. She had declined to have sex with the attacker when he asked, and luckily on this occasion he left. There was also a break-in at the home of a man in his 60s and his elderly mother. It was seldom the attacker chose potential victims that did not live alone. His involvement in the crime was confirmed by matching a DNA sample taken from a carton of orange juice at the scene. Later that summer, a 93-year-old woman was sexually assaulted in her home in the Shirley area of Croydon. She didn't sustain life-threatening injuries during the assault, but her health declined rapidly following the traumatic ordeal, and she passed away within weeks. Operation Minstead became focused on trying to isolate the area where the attacks were most likely to happen – so in turn covert surveillance of the location was organised. High-quality CCTV cameras were set up at ATMs where the suspect had been known to withdraw money using stolen bank cards. Although they had captured the suspect on recordings, his face was covered. Investigators could only identify his clothing, build and height. The first night of surveillance was on October 28th. During that time there were three break-ins just outside of the area Operation Minstead officers were watching. Two of the break-ins were within 100 yards of the search area, and the third was further away. CCTV obtained from the time and route taken to the third scene showed a late-model Vauxhall Sephirah. The following night, there was a 999 call from an elderly woman who believed she could hear someone trying to open the side gate in her garden. Before the police arrived, the stranger had suddenly entered the woman's bedroom and snatched the phone from her. Knowing that the police had been called and were on the way, he ran from the scene. Officers arrived within seconds of him fleeing the house and saw him run down an alley so they gave chase on foot. For almost two miles, the suspect outran the officers before he vanished into thin air. Two weeks after this incident, Delroy Grant was seen fleeing the scene of a suspected burglary and was finally placed under arrest.
0: Well, I'm just shocked. Um, I'm utterly shocked because, as I said, he was an unassuming person um you know totally devoted to his wife and children and as i said it's just come to a shock in this small tight-knit community
1: he was cool because like he take care of his wife his wife is i think he got ms something like that yeah so he's the one who take care of his wife so we all respect him for that you get me he is a dedicated uh husband father uh he's a
0: jehovah witness He's such a dumb nice guy, but I just can't, it's a shock.
1: It's unbelievable. So It's hard to believe, isn't it? A devil, dark side, evil side of him that no one never see. Yeah, I said he should be rot. He should rot. If he done them things to old people, you know what I mean? I mean, if he breaks into the house, it's no good. But molesting them and them things, man, it's good. It could be my mum. My mum is 80. When he was apprehended, Delroy Grant was wearing two pairs of jeans, three t-shirts, and two pairs of underwear. It's common for burglars to wear two sets of clothes to allow them to change their appearance quickly. 52-year-old Grant was slim, but muscular and physically fit for a man of his age. He was 5 feet 8 inches tall with cropped hair. He was missing his front teeth. Concerned for the welfare of the person living in the property Grant was seen running from, officers asked him what he had done. He responded that he, quote, hadn't visited anyone tonight. An inspection of the property showed that a window pane had been removed. Still, the homeowner did not recall anyone in the house. A buccal swab was taken at the station and rushed to the Forensic Science Service's lab for comparison. Delroy Grant appeared eerily calm. He made small talk and was incredibly polite. Before he was booked into the holding cells, he had his fingerprints taken. While the officer was ensuring that the tips of his fingers were covered with enough ink to provide a clear print... Grant allegedly said, I don't know why you're bothering with this. You know I always wear gloves. Evidence found in his car was sent to be examined and would later be positively identified as items used by the person who carried out the crimes and evaded capture for over a decade and a half. A blue rain jacket and a hat he was seen wearing on footage from an ATM camera were discovered in his car. A screwdriver was matched to the distinct tool markings seen on window frames of the homes he invaded. Most damningly, his DNA profile came back as being positively matched to 12 different crime scenes. Surprisingly, before confirmation was received that the DNA profile was a match, Delroy Grant had told an officer at the holding cells that they should look into his son. Grant believed their DNA would be similar, and he said it was not him the police should be looking into. After evading capture for so long, It was believed the fastest way to secure a conviction was to charge Grant with 29 of the suspected hundreds of crimes. Two counts of attempted burglary, 16 counts of burglary, seven counts of indecent assault, one count of attempted rape, and three counts of rape. There were 18 victims of the crimes he was charged with, beginning in October 1992 until November 2009. Delroy Grant was born in Kingston, Jamaica. He never knew his mother, and his father had moved to England for work when he was young, leaving Grant behind to be raised by his grandmother. In 1972, then only 15... He followed his father to England. He completed his last year of school before he started working. At this time, Grant met the woman he would soon marry, Janet Watson. The relationship moved quickly. They were married in 1975 and soon had two children together. Janet would later say that she thought she had found her prince charming, But things quickly turned violent. Janet said Grant was meticulously tidy and would fly into a rage if their home was not up to his standard. He liked to hit and punch and kick. He'd do anything to give me pain. And he'd let you know he's going to give you pain. Yeah, he attacked me when I was pregnant. When I was in labour, he attacked me. Because that's his way. Not only was Delroy Grant violently abusive, but he was also accused of stealing cars. Grant was charged with robbery and sentenced to two years in prison. His marriage to Janet soon collapsed. When he was released, still in his twenties, he had the opportunity to start again. But Delroy Grant's criminal activities had only just begun. In the 1980s, he faced more charges for fraud and handling stolen goods, though at this time no violent or sexual offences were mentioned on his record. In the early 90s, he was married for a second time. His new bride, Jennifer Edwards, was a practising Jehovah's Witness. By all accounts, Delroy Grant had turned his life around. Now in his 30s he seemed to be a devoted husband and well-respected member of the community That would not last long however Within a year of marriage Grant committed the first crime he was charged with raping an 84-year-old woman He was working as a minicab driver Grant took advantage of his post often prowling the streets using his position as a friendly cab driver to watch the comings and goings of elderly people who lived alone. In 2004, the Grant's marriage took a blow when Jennifer was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Sadly, the autoimmune disease aggressively wreaked havoc on Jennifer's body. It scarred the myelin the protective sheath around the nerves in her brain and spine. Life changed fast. In a short time, Jennifer was using a wheelchair and soon needed round-the-clock assistance. Her husband became her full-time carer, paid to assist Jennifer, using a subsidised car that was adapted, making it suitable for changing physical needs. The man that seemed caring and doted on his wife led a double life. In the day he was a husband and carer, but at night he preyed upon the most vulnerable members of society. Following his arrest, Delroy Grant's family could not believe that he was responsible for such horrific crimes and that he had even tried to pin the blame on his son. Delroy Grant had left his first wife years earlier. She raised their sons on her own, and his adult children later said that Grant was never a father to them. Over time, he had fathered eight children, some during extramarital affairs. Neighbours spoke about Delroy Grant in a way that did not fit the picture of the Night Stalker that they had read about in the newspapers. Someone who knew him said He was just like you and me He was your average guy A little bit shy perhaps Delroy was dedicated to his wife and the kids He looks after her night and day and had converted the garage into a bedroom for her Their children were the politest on the street This was an image Delroy Grant had carefully curated to avoid suspicion. Unfortunately, this persona protected him for 17 years, and no one suspected a thing while he was playing the role of a devoted family man. In June 2010, Delroy Grant was brought to the Old Bailey for a plea hearing. As the lengthy indictment was read aloud in court, Grant replied not guilty to each count that was put to him. The trial didn't begin until the following year, on March 3, 2011. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVadis certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to Centair.com and using promo code AMONGUS for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at Centair.com. Presiding over the trial at Woolwich Crown Court was Mr. Justice Rook. Jonathan Laidlow, QC acting for the Crown, opened the case by delivering a statement to the jury of five women and seven men. The prosecutor said that over a period of 17 years, Delroy Grant committed crimes against some of society's most vulnerable people in carefully planned attacks. Laidlow told the jury, The nature of his sexual attacks he committed seems in part to have been determined by the reaction of the individual victim. Those who were too frightened to resist or protest were attacked. Where he experienced resistance and where his elderly victims refused to be compliant, they tended to be left alone. What motivated Delroy Grant to carry out sexual offences on the very elderly and what sort of gratification he could possibly have achieved is obviously difficult, if not impossible, to understand. Whether it was just the additional sexual element that he enjoyed or it was the power and control he could assert whilst committing these offences or it was the fear and anxiety which he created and revelled in, will probably remain unclear. Delroy Grant was careful to cover his face, knowing that his missing front teeth would be a distinctive feature that could be used to identify him. He prolonged the intrusions, often engaging the victims in conversations or feigning to care for their well-being. Jonathan Laidlaw QC said that Grant was not a typical intruder. His offending was, quote, Of an altogether different sort, and was of a far, far more serious and sinister nature because, in what was to become something of a campaign, the defendant was targeting the elderly and the vulnerable in their homes during the night. This is why he was to become known as the Night Stalker. Many of the victims had passed away before Delroy Grant was brought to trial. So their stories were told by the prosecution and members of the police force who had spoken with them. The first victim of Grant's reported sexual attacks was an 89 year old woman. She had written a statement about her attack when she was interviewed. The Crown Prosecutor read this statement out to the court. The victim described how a man came into her room at around 10pm and demanded money. She said I began to worry about what he was going to do to me. He wandered around the room looking restless and then stretched across me to take the bulb out of the bedside lamp so the room was in darkness. I was shouting at him and telling him he was hurting me. He just looked at me and didn't say a thing. After being raped, the elderly victim was terrified that she would be killed by the stranger in her bedroom. Yvette Daniels, the detective constable who had accompanied the woman to the hospital for a medical examination, told the court that the victim said she wished she had never reported the attack. DC Daniels voiced their poignant statement when recalling her conversation with the pensioner after it happened. The officer said, She held my hand tightly, crying and shaking throughout. I noticed her hand was so small. More accounts were read to the jury. An 81-year-old woman from Surrey who had been too immobilised by pain for Delroy Grant to successfully rape her. An 83-year-old man was sexually assaulted in Coulston. An 82-year-old woman had been raped in Addiscombe. Delroy Grant's defence was astonishing to say the least. He claimed that his former wife, Janet Watson, had stored his semen after their divorce. Having obtained it to have it tested for sexually transmitted diseases, she supposedly framed him by planting his DNA at different crime scenes. Janet Watson testified at the trial. Unsurprisingly, she dismissed the allegation, and denied having any knowledge of how DNA evidence worked. At the time of their divorce in 1980, DNA analysis was not a technique used by the police. The Crown Prosecutor said that Delroy Grant's account fell apart when it was subjected to the most gentle of examinations. Jonathan Laidlaw QC said, It is, and I make no apology for saying this again, an extraordinary defence for the defendant to run, borne perhaps in part by the arrogance which characterises his offending and which makes him incapable of facing up to what he has done. The prosecutor detailed the 29 counts the defendant had been charged with, Aldelroy Delroy Grant had targeted homes he knew were occupied by the elderly, Houses that had not been modernised or property that did not have their gardens maintained. If a crime was not linked to Delroy Grant directly through his DNA, it was linked by the tool marks found at crime scenes. He would watch the homes for hours, waiting for the occupant to retire for the evening. In most cases, Grant targeted houses with a specific type of window those with glass panes that could be removed quickly and efficiently before he gained entry undetected. Grant quietly crept through the house, removing light bulbs as he walked towards the homeowner's bedroom. Delroy Grant testified in his own defence, outlining his life as a father of eight and admitting to prior convictions. He continued with the argument that his DNA had been planted by his ex-wife and an unknown person, out of malice and hatred. Grant explained that he had been in the area where he was arrested because he was looking to purchase cannabis, before denying outright that he had provided a false name or made a statement that he always wore gloves. Accusations were directed at his first wife multiple times when he claimed that she also planted evidence in his car. The trial lasted three weeks. Mr. Justice Rook delivered his summary to the jury before they were sent out to deliberate. The judge had asked jurors not to allow their judgment to be impacted by the understandable disgust and revulsion they felt about the crimes. He said that they had to come to the conclusion that Grant had committed all of the crimes if they believed he had committed any of them, because of the evidence linking them together. Two days later, on March 24th, 2011, The jury returned with majority verdicts of 10 to 2, finding Delroy Grant guilty on all counts. Delroy Grant returned to court the following day to be sentenced. One of the survivors of a traumatising attack An 85-year-old woman who had been indecently assaulted nine years earlier in 2002 delivered her own impact statement to the court. She said, If I go out, I like to be home before dark. I do a lot of locking and bolting and taking precautions. It changed my life. I'm quite old and I am lucky really to have the health I have and to be coherent still. I just felt I don't know why he wanted to do these things. Before delivering his sentence, addressing Delroy Grant, Mr Justice Rook said, ''You targeted elderly victims alone. Your actions blighted the remaining precious years of their lives. Their homes where many of them had lived for years.'' should have been the safest refuge where they could have expected to live their lives undisturbed and at peace. Your utter depravity knows no bounds. You are a very dangerous man capable of committing heinous crimes and causing incalculable harm to people. It is a matter for the parole board if you will ever be released. It may be that you will never be released. Delroy Grant was given four life sentences for the three counts of rape and one count of attempted rape. The judge also imposed concurrent eight-year sentences for seven counts of indecent assault and concurrent sentences of six years for the counts of burglary and attempted burglary. Delroy Grant will have to serve a minimum of 27 years in prison before he is eligible for parole. So where are we now? Disturbingly, it emerged that Delroy Grant could have been apprehended in 1999. In May of that year, he broke into an elderly woman's home. The following day, her neighbour contacted the police to say he saw a man getting out of a silver BMW and covering his face before approaching the house. The neighbour sensed something was not quite right and noted the registration plate. When the plate was run through the system, it came up as being registered to Delroy Grant. Officers went to his home and his wife Jennifer confirmed that Grant was the owner of the car. DNA had been found on a carton of orange juice at the scene, and when police ran Grant's name through their database, they found two Delroy Grants. One of them had their DNA stored, but when it was cross-checked against the profile found at the crime scene and DNA at other scenes, it was not a match. Experts had checked the DNA from the wrong man. Without realising, they eliminated Delroy Grant, the owner of the BMW, spotted at the crime scene. This man would later be identified as the Night Stalker, who terrorised the elderly people in and around London. When a potential witness called the authorities in 2001, and advised the police to investigate Delroy Grant as the man responsible for the crimes committed against the elderly in South London. He had already been eliminated by what the authorities thought was solid DNA evidence. Grant went on to commit at least two rapes, 21 indecent assaults and 146 burglaries, though it's believed he committed far more. Following Delroy Grant's conviction, police commander Simon Foy, who is involved in Operation Minstead, provided a statement. It is appropriate for the Metropolitan Police to apologise now for this missed opportunity that led to his continued offending for so long afterwards. We are deeply sorry for the harm suffered by all those other victims and for our failure to to bring Grant to justice earlier finally, I would like again to pay tribute to the courage of Delra Grant's victims, some of whom, as I say, I've met this morning, but sadly some of whom are not alive today to see him convicted. And I hope that they and their families can feel a sense of relief that he has at last been caught and brought to justice. The alleged failings of the Metropolitan Police were investigated by the Independent Police Complaints Commission who concluded that it was due to failures in communication and a lack of supervision that Grant was eliminated from the inquiry with dire consequences. According to the IPCC report, the strategy that led to Grant's arrest was based upon his increased offending pattern. A decision to investigate all the burglaries instead of just those where a sexual assault had occurred, predicting where he would commit other offences, monitoring the cash machines he was known to use, and a coordinated surveillance operation. The impact of Delroy Grant's crimes affected the victims for the rest of their lives. Some of the survivors spoke about the horrors they endured at both the trial and afterwards. One victim said, I wasn't in a position to defend myself because of my age and infirmity. An 88-year-old man was awoken at 3am in August 2009. The survivor told the guardian. It was the second time he had come. The first time around a year earlier. He broke in dressed in black with his face all covered up. But after I challenged him he left. I think it surprised him that I was not asleep. The second time he told me he wanted money. I gave him what I had but then he said he wanted something else. Delroy Grant's crimes not only had an impact on the lives of his victims, but also other elderly members of the community. One woman told journalist Amelia Hill that she spent the past 15 years fearing every knock on the door and every bump in the night. She said, That man might be safely behind bars, but terror of the outside world is now ingrained into me. I've forgotten what it is to feel safe. Benji Douglas from the Lifespan Project at the National Sexual Violence Resource Centre spoke about sex attacks, offering his thoughts to a journalist for the Daily Beast. Douglas said, Society still implicitly believes that rape is about sex. That's because, for the most of us, sex is something you do for pleasure. But a rapist doesn't think like that. It's about controlling someone sexually. Sexual violence has no age limitations. It's not about or due in any part to the victim. It is the offender's need to control. There was never an opportunity for the deaths of Delroy Grant's elderly victims to be linked to his crimes. There is no way of knowing if their lives would have been prolonged had he not broken into their homes in the dead of night, leaving them in a state of fear for the rest of their days. Delroy Grant will be in his 80s when he is eligible for release. anyone you know is affected by the themes mentioned in this episode, please visit rapecrisis.org.uk. For confidential advice from Rape Crisis South London, in the UK, call 0808 802 999 For listening. A special thanks to our new Patreon producer, Evan Stone, and everyone who supports us on Patreon. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com.